There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Alva. I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. I know she's still on holiday. But on today's episode, Stephen and I discuss the ongoing texting saga engulfing Boris Johnson, and you ask us about the possibility of a border poll in Northern Ireland. This has been, in some ways, a kind of quiet or a bitter week in Westminster politics, while a lot of attention is diverted towards local election campaigning. But the top story today is around Boris Johnson's texting habits. Downing Street has officially denied reports that uh, the cabinet secretary, Mark Sedwell, told Boris Johnson to get a new phone number because he had given his number to too many people. And that comes in the wake of leaked text messages between Boris Johnson and James Dyson about arrangements for tax breaks for Dyson when they were making ventilators during the pandemic. Also, in recent weeks, there have been leaks of text messages between Boris Johnson and Mohammed bin Salman. And Labour are calling for an investigation into this. And Downing Street have paradoxically announced an investigation, not into that, but into who leaked it in the case of the James Dyson messages. Stephen, do you think that this texting thing in particular has much cut through or is a is a tricky story for the Conservatives? Keir Starmer led on it in PMQs yesterday, but do you think it, it's effective for them? I, I'm aware, at, you know, Listeners at this point may 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 feel like they were like going to get their cigarette lighter out and go play the hits, um, but we're award winning now, so it's an award winning hit. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, essentially, right. The ideal situation if you are an opposition party which has uh, not won an election for more than a decade and has been out of power for eleven years is essentially like to find as many crude ways as possible of going. These guys have been around for a bit, haven't they? Maybe it's time for a change. Maybe they're getting long in the tooth. But obviously you can't, yeah, it's not newsworthy to like, you know, do a press release, yeah, like, you know, news from Labour. Um, at the sound of the beat, it'll be 300, you know, it'll be 3,000 and something days since uh, since the Conservatives were last out of office. But I think the thing about, the thing that is, is particularly dangerous to the Conservatives about these corruption stories is not anything about the individual texture of any of them, but the fact that it allows them to kind of, you know, it 
it is a, an, another excuse for Labour to, whether it's, you know, using old photos of them together, doing that like very old opposition party trick of going, look, we don't have any actual news to move this story on to a day two, but we're hoping maybe some papers will have to put it in because it will be a quiet news day. Let's send some party staffers wearing novelty masks. And oh, look, there's Cameron, there's Boris, there's Rishi. Yeah, there's strategic imperatives and there's strategic vulnerabilities, right? That allows them to basically like that bloke who was prime minister at the start of the decade, that bloke who is prime minister now, and the person who currently is the under the bus, you know, if he were to, you know, go out like Palmerston, the real history nerds would get that for reference. Yeah, it allows them to sort of link all of those people over the course of a decade. But I think there is a vulnerability for the Conservatives in the, that group of people who didn't receive any economic support at any point, right? The, you know, the, the, self, uh, the self-employed, the, the, the excluded three million, right? I think if you're an opposition party, any story which allows you to go, this person got this thing after a text. You have had two meetings all year. You've had to eat into your savings. Some of you have lost your homes despite the fact that all of those people have done is legally arrange their businesses in a way that the Treasury doesn't like, but hasn't at any point forbade. It's like it's an attack line which is kind of incidentally useful. I don't know what you think, but I kind of think the actual meat of it, however, is not politically that significant. Yeah, I mean, I think that the specifically the texting story at PMQs yesterday, I mean, I'm aware that we, we will have lots of listeners who don't like the conservative government and seeing it through that lens think that this is yet another example of things to be unhappy with in how they govern but i do think that if you're if you're not looking at it from that perspective that Keir Starmer's line on it yesterday wasn't particularly strong he couldn't really make it any stronger but i think it's just the the fact of that specific case which had only come out that morning. So I think in that sense, it was strong because it caught Boris Johnson slightly off guard. He didn't have loads of time to prepare on it. But ultimately, it's a story about ventilators during the pandemic. And certainly the interesting thing being in Westminster after PM during and after PMQs yesterday was gauging the reaction of other political journalists who are certainly not the be all and end all in terms of public opinion, but really nobody thought that it had gone that well for Keir Starmer actually. And I think that the bottom line is that even though there are plenty of issues with the principle of Boris Johnson saying that he'll fix tax arrangements for James Dyson because James Dyson is texting him to ask about it. Ultimately, it's like another example of the Conservatives trying to secure contracts to get ventilators and PPE, which, you know, and ventilators were a big issue at the start of the pandemic. So I think the fact that it's on that means it just doesn't have particularly good cut through and there's nothing Labour can do about that. And it's clearly part of a a much bigger story. And then on that bigger story, I think the interesting thing, you know, we've talked about the green sill scandal which is still unfolding and whether that will damage the conservatives the thing that's actually struck me about that is that that's a very bad story for david cameron and his government and the civil servants involved at that point and clearly it touches the current conservative government to an extent but i actually think in terms of the things that are damaging for the conservatives 
there's nothing worse in the green sale scandal than the revelations about PPE procurement during the pandemic. Because actually, as you say, I think that people care a bit less about the process than about the results. Probably in, I think, in terms of public opinion, it matters much less whether contracts are going to people's mates than whether the contracts deliver or not. And during, I mean, there was, so there's a report today from Transparency UK, which has found that the way the UK government handled PPE and other coronavirus contracts appears partisan and systemically biased in favour of those with political access. And it said that there were, you know, there was a sort of red flag on about 20% of the contracts allocated. But the worst of those contracts are the ones that didn't deliver any PPE. You know, there are plenty of examples of contracts, not necessarily actually the same ones handed to Tory mates, but there are lots and lots of examples of contracts awarded to companies that had never done that sort of thing before, that did have some sort of link to the Conservative Party, that made masks or other kinds of PPE that were faulty. And so you just have tens or hundreds of thousands of masks just sitting in a warehouse somewhere unused. And that's, you know, that's a sort of monument to wasted public money and the the real world consequences of mishandling the allocation of contracts. I think that's worse than texts between people or, you know, revealing that, that two people that you didn't think had any sort of connection actually do have a very obvious connection and that could have had a role in how they got the contract. The point is actually like when the contracts go go very badly wrong, the Greensill story is a, a slightly different kettle of fish. And I actually do actually think, I don't know if you, if you agree, but I think that there is a really big challenge for Labour in terms of overcoming this perception that Boris Johnson's government is a totally new government. I think that he does have a very different image to David Cameron. And people aren't stupid. People know that they're both conservatives. But I don't think that people see it as a continuation of the same administration. We've talked before about how they pulled that off so well in 2019. And it was key to Boris Johnson's success. I just think that when bad things happen to do with David Cameron, that Boris Johnson isn't very politically damaged by them. So it all has to be about what he and his government are up to now. And... Yeah, and, and the sort of the slow trickle of the actual potential damage of of handing out contracts badly. I both completely agree and vehemently disagree. <laughs> Boris Johnson had this, this dream political position in, in December 2019. He was the change candidate and he was also the stop all this noise, you know, things will be calm again. Uh, 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 you know, I'm the safe choice, the other guy's the crazy choice candidate, right? In a very similar way, actually, to the way John Major was able to go, oh, look, I'm I'm new, right? And in some ways, the dynamic of, other than the fact that obviously uh, the 1997 election was a better election result in 1987, but, but you know, the 1987-2017 are similar in some quite important aspects, right? Then, you know, Labour had, you know, same, you know, the same shadow foreign secretary, the same shadow chancellor, the same uh, shadow home secretary, the same leader in both elections. The 87-2017 campaigns were both considered to be brilliant defeats, which which strengthened the, the position of, of the leader. And then they went into the next election with same shadow foreign secretary, same shadow home secretary, same leader, same shadow chancellor. 
against the Conservative Party, which had changed all of those things. And I think at the moment, right, the, the big problem is that voters do, as you say, regard this as a new government. But most first-term governments are re-elected. And most first-term governments are re-elected with a higher margin than the, yeah, they, they get a kind of like, well, you know, give them another go. You know, they, they haven't had, ha- had, had much time. So it's one of those things where there are some things where you have to go like, oh, well, you know, that ship sailed and that ship sailing has made our life harder. But, you know, you've, you've got to accept the reality of where, where you are as a political party. But I don't think this being an old government is one of those. I think it is the most important argument that the Labour Party uh, has to make is that the government is an old one. I also think, I agree that broadly, right, the thing about corruption is, is, is voters don't mind, provided you can be like, I got the best people. But one of the, and I think it's an endemic problem of political parties, right, political parties, for obvious reasons, have to be based on trust, right? And there's a kind of, there is a sort of inbuilt, like, kind of who knows who in a political party. But that means all political parties have this kind of weird structural bias towards hiring people they know, people who don't do their jobs very well. And I just think sooner or later, the sort of approach of, oh, you know, let's hire in a very partisan way, which I think it's more acute the the longer a government is in office, um, people don't suddenly go, oh, I care about corruption, but they do go, I don't understand why I wait so long for access to justice. I don't understand why this thing happened. I don't understand why my local business couldn't get a meeting with the minister, but so-and-so could, right? So in a week like this week, right, where he couldn't ask about the European Super League, right, what was he going to do? He can't stand up and be like, hey, can I congratulate the prime minister on, 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 on the fact that this bad thing that we both disagree on has stopped. He obviously can't do the vaccine rollout. So it therefore makes sense to do like a big strategic theme of to be, you know, the justice waiting lists lover has logged on, which I think that should be one of their big go-to themes. But I think it kind of therefore made sense to go on corruption. I think his problem in terms of like the lobby reaction is it's a bit like, um, and I can't remember who it was who'd resigned from the Labour front bench, but someone resigned from the Conservative front bench and it would, but it would obviously not have been a good thing for Jeremy Corbyn to go on it, right? Yeah, he was basically being like, hey, Teresa, do you want to hit my glass jaw right back? Um, and the lobby got very like, oh, why didn't he go on that? Oh, he should get on. Then, the the leader of the opposition, or indeed the prime minister, always does badly in weeks than we decide they should win because at the end of it, the leader of the opposition or the prime minister, whoever one is the one who should lose, is still the leader of the opposition or the prime minister. And so that PMQ has become a disaster for the side which ought to win. So I, I guess I basically think that you're, you're completely right about all of the ways the corruption stuff isn't currently landing. But it is like the police cuts, right? You just have to, you know, the, the art I think of opposition is, you pick an area where the where the other lot will be vulnerable at the right point in the parliamentary cycle. You pick dividing lines and favour your policies, your values, your ideas. And you just have to kind of like hope that you are A, doing it in a good and interesting way. And also that you don't do the kind of, um, you know, the kind of slight problem I think Labour had very strongly under Ed Miliband, where they would basically go, oh, that didn't work. Should we try something else? I don't think that... Keir Starmer really could have done a better job with what he had at PMQs and I feel like it made sense to go on it. I just think that as a sort of short term thing, it it could never have really landed any better because of the, the whole ventilator thing. But I agree. I think that on in terms of identifying a weakness, this has is really like the main political strength of Labour at the moment. Um, that they did before or sort of as this was becoming an issue 
but while they were still in a while we were still in a very sort of constructive serious phase of politics where huge numbers of people were dying every day and labor had to strike a very conciliatory tone they still at that point could identify the problem with like the allocation of government contracts and problems around pp procurement and a, a building theme of cronyism and came out quite strongly with a huge set of policies very early on as you said like drew that d- dividing line between themselves and labor and so when more stories come up the the labor position i know we're particularly well placed on this because we've covered this quite a lot um but i think you know for basically all political journalists it's very clear what labor's view on this is they have plenty of policies around you know changing the freedom of information act you know extending that um having a I, I can't remember their phrase for it, but like having a sort of an independent corruption um, czar to oversee corruption who isn't a conservative MP married to Dido Harding, um, you know, to have, um, you know, the, that radical insourcing program, like the, all these problems were identified quite early on and quite strongly. And so, as you say, as more things come out, um, they've already sort of drawn that up quite well. I don't feel like they've done that on very many other issues, but that was that's a particularly good example of political foresight. And it means that this will just sort of rumble on in the background and then crop up again every so often. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. time for a section we like to call you ask us (laughs) very good um so this is a question from will 
who has written in to say, the, the Good Friday Agreement requires the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to call a border poll if it is likely that the majority of people in Northern Ireland would vote for a united Ireland. That's a lot of saying Ireland in one sentence. Um, with opinion polls on this issue narrowing, but with the UK government seemingly happy to ignore treaty obligations in other areas, how will this dy- dynamic play out in the coming months and years? Is it likely that we'll see more polling on this? And have the Conservatives thought about this? Stephen, do you want to tackle that first? Yeah, I mean, one of the slightly weird things is because basically no one seems to poll Northern Ireland anymore. Yeah, like Northern Ireland's constitutional destiny now might hinge on lucid talk. I mean, God, imagine how nervous you'd feel if you're like the lucid talk poster. It turned out and you'd been massively overestimating support for reunification on like the night of the... but. I'm not going to minimise uh, my disagreement with any of the positions in the yeah the UK government's uh, ignoring of some of its treaty obligations on, on other issues. But I think, and I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Conservatives just keep being stuck on the protocol and stuck on Northern Ireland around Brexit, is that as much as they want to wish this, this difficulty away, the things that the Brexit project relies on, right, our Trans-Pacific alliances, our uh, alliance with the United States, our ability to strike trade deals, um, particularly with um, yeah, the, the with the Kanzak nations, kind of all rely yeah, like all cannot be sort of reconciled with just being like Good Friday Agreement. What Good Friday Agreement? I think this, the difficulties, and this is where I come back. This is why you know the lucid talk point is is not just me being deeply nerdy, right? That I, I do think the slightly weird thing is is that. Is actually the question is well, what does constitute a um, a majority? Yeah, the kind of, because so the treaty obligation for those who you know, who don't know is that sorry, I don't know. Literally, just read out what the treaty obligation is. Blech. So the the thing that I think is often missed about the treaty obligation is that um, there would be a concomitant referendum in Ireland at the same time. Yeah, I think actually in some ways the, the, the actually interesting question, certainly the question that when you speak to people in the Irish government, they are thinking about a lot is in terms of some of the stuff about the, okay, well, because there are still unionists who live in Ireland and have, you know, well, hey, mostly not since, but yeah, their families have there since, 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 uh, right? There, there, um, there, there is an open question about, you know, okay, so what would you do to like, yeah, would you have special protections for the environment? Would Stormont continue to be a devolved parliament um, in Ireland in the way it's currently a devolved parliament in the United Kingdom? And I think actually the 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 political dynamic then is going to start to become more interesting over the coming in months. Will be assuming for a moment that none of the trends which currently favour support for a United Ireland, not least than you know. And this is, I mean, this is why unionists are right to feel um, that they've been let down by the by the protocol and by you know the the government of the United Kingdom going. Actually, we've decided that given a choice between being aligned on goods and phytosanitary standards, and um, and putting a ruddy great um, regulatory barrier between you and the rest of your country, um, we we really love the idea of this regulatory barrier. Is that if you kind of assume that there's basically yeah. In any in any political issue, there's like a group of people who vote their own interest, and then two groups of people who vote on either side of it. No matter what, the own interest group is going to start moving towards reunification because that is the direction that it's easier to trade in now. But 
yeah, if, if you're the other side of the equation, you don't just start going, hmm, I guess we'd better start planning for what this would look like, you know, once it's regularly clearing 55% or whatever. Basically, the point then, at the point then it's kind of plausible-ish, which you could argue we're kind of entering into that zone now, you do have to start going, okay, yeah, well, what about Stormont after reunification? What about, and I think that is actually probably the under underappreciated dynamic. Well, obviously all dynamics in Northern Irish politics are underappreciated um, for reasons I imagine we'll get into slightly later in this section. But what, what, what do you think, Alva? Um, I thought this was such a good question. Um, so I think it's probably helpful to start off um, as you say, there isn't very much polling done on this because I think it would be sort of devices, divisive and contentious if it was polled regularly. But I think that the theme that this question is referring to is that there was a, a really brilliant, I recommend it to all our listeners, a, a really brilliant hour-long documentary by BBC Northern Ireland's former political editor, Mark Davenport on the state of Northern Ireland a century after its creation. And as part of that, I mean, it's great. They, that's where they, they did interviews with Boris Johnson. He said some interesting things about the about the Irish Sea border. He, they, he interviewed all the key players. It's it's very moving, really, really interesting. Um, but as part of that, they commissioned some polling, which showed that a majority of people on both sides of the Irish border believe that NI will have left the UK within 25 years. And then in Northern Ireland, in terms of actual opinion polling on support for a United Ireland or not, um, 49% of people said that they would vote to remain in the UK and 43% backed United Ireland and 8% are undecided. So the question mentions the polls narrowing on this. And I'm not actually sure if that's entirely correct because the polling isn't that regular. But I think... On the direction of travel on this, I think two things are true. Regardless of the the wider Brexit context, it's true that demographic changes mean that the sort of the natural Protestant unionist majority in Northern Ireland is is slowly falling. But the the second important point about that is that those demographic changes and bigger sort of societal changes in Northern Ireland don't mean that that decline means a growing majority for Irish unity um, because actually the growing demographic is that undecided. You know, I think 8% of people not knowing how they would vote in a border poll in a country where frankly everyone knows whether they are Protestant or Catholic with very few exceptions. We're like in a country where people know sort of by heritage where they should be on that issue unless they've like recently moved to Northern Ireland I think eight percent of people not knowing how they would vote on that is quite significant and there's a lot of really interesting research done into that that basically you know people very very squarely in my demographic so younger people who grew up in quite middle class areas who you know grew up in a more secular Northern Ireland and um you know pr- you know were more likely to attend mixed schools to have friends from both communities more and more people like that would be in the unaligned middle that kind of growing that growing group that is open to persuasion on this issue and 
And actually the interesting thing about that is that it isn't even just younger people like myself that I've described that, you know, there's a, a trend that lots of middle-class Protestant women um, who I think are, I think the, the polling said it was sort of over 50, but plenty of, of women like that are actually undecided on how they would vote um, in a potential border poll. So they're, so basically the, the thing is that despite the trend, there are just more and more people who don't know how they would vote on this. And that raises its its own big questions for Northern Irish politics, because as you were saying about the the people sort of being inclined to vote for their interests, it's it's very clear, despite what the British government would say, that the Irish sea border incentivizes greater trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and the EU and basically provides a trade incentive to reorient the Northern Irish economy away from the rest of the UK economy, away from the British economy. I think that's a factor. And also with these new Brexit arrangements, Sinn Féin are making the case for a border poll within the next five years, arguing that, you know, the situation of Northern Ireland has changed. And so there's a sort of, I think there's a very tricky dynamic where I think that it is those those big themes around, you know, Sinn Féin saying that a united Ireland is more likely and that there's a need for a border poll. People like George Osborne writing that a united Ireland is, is more likely. A majority of people polled in this poll think that a united Ireland is likely within 25 years but the like as you say that debate around around what the actual arrangements for that would be you know will tap into very profound unionist anxieties that are part of what's fueling the violence that we've seen um will kind of fuel that anxiety and create you know a bit of friction and instability and it means that people in that undecided group will have to choose and you know it's you know it's not what nationalists want to hear um but part of the peace um in or the relative peace in northern ireland is kind of predicated on more and more people who don't have an urgent burning opinion on this question anymore and who are happy to live with the status quo which means I suppose being a de facto unionist and so they really need to disrupt that and and in a sense actively create a division again in order to to achieve the ultimate goal of a united Ireland I so I think there there are very tricky political dynamics there um in terms of yeah I, I mean I think this the second part of the question about how it is basically in the Secretary of State's gift to to grant a, a border poll in Northern Ireland or not. If you know, I think the wording is like, if it seems likely a majority would vote for it, which isn't quite the case yet. But it yeah, would be in Brandon Lewis's gift to decide. I think that for it, you know, the word likely there is very unclear. And, you know, given that we're having this parallel debate about what a mandate for a Scottish independence referendum would look like. I think maybe down the line, you could see um, a bit of tension over a border poll being granted or not. But I definitely actually, because the question 
it was a longer question. Um, you know, the question was, you know, have the conservatives thought about this at all? I don't think that they have at all. I've never heard a conservative um, discuss this potential dynamic. I think that they just, similar to the approach to um, Scottish independence, which is a more immediate one, I think they see that as a million miles away and not a bridge that they are crossing yet. I think the more the more pressing thing is the extent to which we have a lively debate in Northern Ireland about reunification and how disruptive that could potentially be. Yeah, I think they have the Conservatives thought about this at all and should they um, dynamic is, as you say, like a key question. And, and, I, and I think, well, we can kind of see, yeah, as you say, um, the answer is, well, no, obviously not, right? There are uh, Conservative activists, mostly Conservative activists um, who are from that part of the United Kingdom who, who have thought of it and are sort of aware of it but yeah the i think the number of conservatives who have ever gone okay well what does appears likely mean and what does the trajectory towards appearing likely look like in terms of its impact on 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 politics in uh in on both sides of, of the border but i think you know we, we see the level of of you know interest and attention in you know i was actually johnny mercer resigning johnny mercer kind of like he didn't even get to just resign. The, every time we say that until, until you know, the end of our lives, we'll be saying, or, or you know, he was sacked before he got to resign. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, and I think it's the weird thing, like the complaining about like being sacked by text. Now, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like <laughs> if, I, if I popped my head in and went, by the way, I intend to trigger my 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 how many months notice um, like in two weeks time. Going to make a big statement. I I feel like no, I feel like that is you giving notice. <laughs> That's mm. how it works. You can't have a transition to flouncing out of a government. That's not how it works. But the thing that's particularly, I mean, okay, there are there are there are substantial policy problems and I think moral problems with um, the Johnny Mercer position. But the other thing that he's kind of surprised that the government couldn't keep this promise, yeah, is that like, it showed how little attention he paid to the politics or the policy issues at play. Like, it just yeah. obviously wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a goer if he had, you know, kind of had any engagement in Northern Ireland beyond, you know, in conclusion, Northern Ireland is a land of contrasts. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's amazing because I think, you know, Johnny Mercer is a is a single issue politician. He's a former soldier. He was in Afghanistan. His whole time in politics has been about, as he would put it, making lives better for, you know, his brothers and sisters who served in the British Army. He talks really passionately about, you know, his resignation letter over the government failure so far to follow through on that pledge to protect Northern Irish or protect British soldiers who served in Northern Ireland from prosecution. His resignation letter on that, you know, talks about veterans drinking themselves to death and, you know, but sort of paints a picture of frail old men who, you know, in their 80s and 90s who are sort of, um, you know, are having their lives ruined by vexatious um, investigations against them. Um, he comes very much from that perspective. He, he gave an interview with um, my old boss, Charlotte Edwards, um, a few years ago. And, you know, he talks about, you know, he basically had like an abusive childhood. He had very bad OCD. And 
I think that the army sort of saved him. And I think I think just the the personal politics of that are really, really interesting that then, you know, he is he is in Westminster politics. He became a minister and it's all about, you know, protecting those people who gave him a family and stability and so on. Um but yeah, he he's so focused on that and this very vivid image of people who like him served in the British army and did things. And then this idea of them being plagued, you know, by, you know, invasive vexatious trials for the rest of their lives. He paints a very, very vivid picture of that, which is frankly like totally divorced from the, the reality of that issue around what happens to, to crimes committed during the troubles what do victims want? What do the various political parties in Northern Ireland want? What has already been agreed by the British government on this issue? What is permitted under international human rights law, under the UK's international human rights commitments? It's amazing that he sincerely seems to be surprised that the government has not been able to introduce the legislation. It's promised yet when it doesn't really seem clear how they ever will and you know so he gave this line to Newsnight yesterday talking about how he stood at the dispatch box he had counted how many times I can't remember how many times it was but something like 11 he'd stood at the dispatch box 11 times promising that this legislation would be coming through soon and it still hasn't and he's fed up with it um but it's amazing that this was his brief yet he didn't seem to know how it would work or not work. Yeah, so so that whole thing is is really baffling. And as you say, um, I, I was very careful to sort of write about this fairly in terms of just the political implications of it. But as you say, there's, you know, there's a massive moral question about that. You know, if you if you commit murder with a British army uniform on, should you be exempt from a criminal trial? Probably not. Um, and, you know, within the, a sort of human rights framework, that's quite clear and not really possible. But even just aside from that, there are some, you know, there are some cases highlighted by Amnesty International. There's a there's a quite prominent case of a 12 year old girl who was gunned down in the street by a British soldier. You know, a 12 year old girl with no connection to anything political there. You know, at the time, I think the British soldier involved was put on trial, but the the judge waived it and so there's there's never been justice in that case it's a like a really big um prominent example of this in northern ireland these are the kinds of cases that we're talking about and so there's something quite troubling about his position on it and the campaigning that plenty of right-wing newspapers like the sun and the telegraph have done on it but then separately labor has not really managed to make this case very coherently but it also really just exposes this recurring theme from Boris Johnson's government of quite bafflingly making promises that just seem impossible to keep. Uh, I don't. I I sincerely don't know why they do it, because even if they do manage to bring some kind of legislation that claims to protect veterans in Northern Ireland from prosecution, it won't. It won't do the job that they're promising it will do. It, it just couldn't um and so I mean I, I think maybe a part of it is that 
even though there is a Northern Irish Conservative Party, which you alluded to earlier, basically the number of MPs elected from Northern Ireland is tiny and they don't vote for either of the main parties. So I think maybe just the Northern Irish electorate is not seen as important. Um, but just the the way, I mean, they, they made a, a promise that alienated a lot of people, this pledge. But then by breaking it, they've alienated everyone else. Um, I don't know why you would possibly do it. I'm, I'm interested in your view on this, Stephen, like what what plan there could possibly be behind that. Um, but yeah, the whole thing has been baffling. The, um, the Johnny Mercer, you know, suddenly realizing that the government couldn't deliver on this so late in the day is very baffling. But the broader government strategy on it, I think, is really baffling as well. That in some ways to me is actually the least surprising thing, right? Why, why is that his strategy? Well, because that's, that is Boris Johnson and therefore the government he leads sort of strategy for life, right? Like it's, it's, it's his strategy to say, you know, I'll, I'll be with you for my IT lessons, but, you know, but I, I, I'll never like betray or upset my kids. Uh, it's his strategy for politics to go, you know, yeah, of course, like n- no rises in the main rate of tax, but debt will continue to fall and will increase public spending in these key areas. So, you know, it's his political strategy to go, you know, nothing will change, will remain in the, you know, will remain in the free trade area stretching from, um, you know, t- stretching from, you know, Turkey to, to Norway. But spoiler alert, we'll, we'll leave the customs union and leave the single market too, right? And, and you know, the kind of, the Boris Johnson leadership style is to promise everything never you know never be willing to yeah this is why like even you know like green conservatives who will go i'm glad zach's there i'm glad that we've got a more ambitious target now you know the the reason why they will occasionally go oh but i'm worried that this won't actually happen is because they basically feel that he will yeah i mean actually a really good case in point right until um quasi quartain came in and and essentially did change the policy uh from where yeah kind of We'll have this radical climate change target, but we'll open another coal mine. The case against Boris Johnson's political project as something which is stable and can end in anything other than acrimonious failure is, you know, sorry to put it this crudely, but eventually Marina does leave you. Like, eventually there is a border poll. Eventually you have to choose between people feeling more safe because of your police pledge and, you know, putting what's left of the justice system uh, through a grinder marked £17 billion of cuts to unprotected departments. Like, eventually, if you want to be like, I care about class rather than rather than race, you do have to, like, pivot conservative policy away from being designed around the, you know, the, the political and economic interests of, you know, bluntly ethnic minorities in, in, in my um, bit of the income distribution towards um, the working class of all hues. Um, and then if you don't do these things, eventually the wheels fall off the wagon. Now, of course, the the success of Boris Johnson thus far is that he has always managed to be somewhere else by the point the wheels fall off. But I don't think that I guess I, they, I think, I, and may, maybe maybe it will be be the stuff around the border poll. But I think eventually Johnny Mercer resigns. Eventually the yeah, eventually the like the waveform collapses. The question is, is you know how long is eventually. And, you know, will he, you know, will eventually be the kind of like, you know, Boris Johnson writes a languid piece in retirement for the Spectator or the Telegraph or wherever, while, you know, Prime Minister Alan Mack stands up and goes, 
I regret to inform you <laughs> that the average person now waits four years for a court date. Yeah, I suppose the question is, how long does it take before the electorate at large does a marina slash uh, Johnny Mercer? You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our political editor, Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at PronouncedAlva. You can find me on Twitter at, at StephenKB. We're produced by Chris Stone, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. <laughs>